0: This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on depression in children. Kieran Walsh is my name, I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. Depression in children is common, The estimated prevalence rate of depressive disorder in children under 13 is 2.8%, and in children between 13 and 18 is 5.6%. Depression in this age group can cause a range of problems, including poor quality of life, suicidal behavior, and substance misuse. So how should we diagnose and manage children with depression? To tell us, we have on the line Professor David Brent, who's academic chief Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and importantly, David is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So, David, you're welcome. Let's start out by asking, what exactly is depression in childhood?
1: Yes. For first, um, thanks for having me. And um, depression is a, a a psychiatric condition which is found across the age span and it's characterized by either a sad, irritable, or bored mood, uh, difficulty experiencing pleasure, and uh, a constellation of other symptoms that include changes in sleep and appetite, either increased or decreased, uh, difficulty with concentration, uh, feelings of worthlessness, guilt, uh, difficulty making decisions and uh, suicidal ideation and behavior. And
0: and are those symptoms the the same in children, as in adults uh, broadly with with depression?
1: They're more or less similar. Uh, I would say adolescents are, it's indistinguishable from adults. I would say in younger kids, it's often uh, mixed together with uh, conduct symptoms and I would say that they are more prone to show um, irritability or boredom rather than um, voicing uh, sadness.
0: Okay, great. Well, let's move on and, and find out how, how do you diagnose this uh, c- condition? How do you distinguish it from from normal
1: sadness? Right. Okay, that's a great question. And I think that's one of the biggest pitfalls in the diagnosis uh, of the condition because there's a view that all adolescents, for example, are moody and so that it's important not to write off depression as just the normal ups and downs of, uh, of the teenage years. We don't have any lab tests, so the best way to diagnose the condition is to, um, you can use self-report questionnaires such as the mood and feelings questionnaire which is in the public domain and there's a cutoff score that would tell you that the person is likely to be depressed and then you can also go um, and try and determine whether or not um, the child has had either a sad bored or irritable mood that for more days than not for at least two weeks and uh, associated with uh, functional impairment and uh, four or five of the symptoms that I mentioned before.
0: Okay, thank you. That that's that's helpful. And in terms of diagnosis, I wonder what are the common pitfalls? Would you say?
1: So I th- would say there are two uh, pitfalls. One is that there are other conditions that can mimic it, or you miss uh, a comorbid morbid condition you need to distinguish, for example, depression from demoralization that may be associated with another condition like attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity. You could see it in a kid who's primarily anxious and is forced to go to school or go to some, be in some other situation that causes them a lot of anxiety. In somebody with obsessive compulsive disorder where they're uh, not able to engage in their ritual rituals and they become very dysphoric, or somebody with an eating disorder where they're getting treatment against their will and, and being fed and forced to gain weight. At the same time, all of those conditions co-occur with depression. And so another pitfall is missing a comorbid condition that might be contributing to to the disorder. So for example, if you have a kid with um, anxiety and depression and you don't address the anxiety, then given that one of the treatments for depression is to try and encourage people to engage in rewarding behavior and the kid is limited in doing that due to their anxiety, you really need to address both. Uh, another pitfall is missing uh, a comorbid medical condition, which may mimic depression. For example, iron deficiency, anemia, or you know, inflammatory conditions, which of course can also increase the risk for depression, but you want to make sure that you're not uh, missing those uh, diagnoses. Another pitfall is missing a bipolar diagnosis. And we know that, you know, a certain proportion of youth, uh, say about um, 10%, are vulnerable to developing a bipolar disorder rather than just a simple unipolar depression. And the reason this is important is because treatment with with an antidepressant could flip somebody into a manic, and so the management is different. And so you need to inquire about whether there have been episodes of, of mania or hypomania. And that these can be as brief as uh, a day um, at a time.
0: Okay, thank you. And, and to ask you a, a very specific condition, in inflammatory conditions, what specifically do you, do you mean by inflammatory conditions? Is that like rheumatological conditions that might affect children?
1: It, it is, but the 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 conditions that are most uh, commonly associated with an increased risk of depression are asthma and inflammatory bowel disease, and, and nobody really knows the mechanism. But people posit that there's a link between inflammation and and depression.
0: Okay, thank you, thank you. Well, let's let's move on to management. Um, tell us what are the foundations of management of this condition?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, I think the first element is education. So you have to help the parent and child understand that depression is a disease, it's not anybody's fault, and that there are treatments that are available and then help them understand what are the the range of different treatment options and also what they can expect in terms of the course of the uh, condition. And then the second thing is to offer support. And um, in, you know, mild depression, uh, this can be sufficient, but uh, for a more long lasting or more severe depression, you have to go to more um, specific treatments. And so the first line treatment is some sort of psychotherapy and the most uh, the the psychotherapies that have the most evidence um, to show that they're effective are cognitive behavioral therapy and interpersonal therapy. And cognitive behavioral therapy focuses on the uh, dysfunctional thinking that many depressed uh, patients show where they tend to um, view the world through um, dark glasses, and uh, and consequently, they take in information in such a way that it reinforces their depressed mood. An example would be somebody who would go to a grocery store and then complain that the checkout clerk didn't smile at them, when in reality, you know, that often happens and that it's not personal. But a depressed person might take it uh, personally And see that as another sign that they're unlovable. Interpersonal therapy is uh, a treatment where the person's depression is viewed in the matrix of their interpersonal relationships and um, seeks to repair them and make them more rewarding. And and it's also a very effective mode of uh, treatment. For youth who don't uh, respond to either of these approaches. Um, we use antidepressants, and the most uh, the best studied antidepressants are the uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like fluoxetine. It's probably the one with the strongest evidence. And um, these these uh, medications can be um, effective, particularly in combination uh, with psychotherapy.
0: Okay, thank you. And and about drug treatment, th- there has been controversies about tr- drug treatment in children and adolescents. Can you tell us about that?
1: Sure. the 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 biggest controversy has to do with the relationship between the use of SSRIs and uh, suicidal events. In in randomized clinical trials, um, there is an increased incidence of increase in suicidal ideation or suicide attempts in youth treated with um, antidepressants compared to uh, placebo. If you look carefully at the data, the risk difference is about 1% or less, which means you might have an incidence of 3% of suicidal events in people treated with an antidepressant versus 2% in placebo and you have to look at this in the context of of what the likelihood is that somebody's going to benefit from an antidepressant and so the likelihood that somebody's going to benefit from an antidepressant is about 11 times more likely than they're going to develop a suicidal event and so it this falls into the category of education you need to explain to the family and to the patient what the benefits and risks are, and th- and they can make their own decision then about whether they think that that's acceptable. I would say that there also are pharmacoepidemiologic studies that look, you know, naturalistically at the relationship between uh, use of antidepressants and suicide. And the, the convergence is that the um, the rate of suicide is inversely proportional to the rate of prescriptions of antidepressants, even in youth. And so the question is, why do you have that finding that they're protective in those types of studies, yet in randomized clinical trials you don't find you find the opposite? And I think the answer is that the most people who have depression don't get into clinical trials. And in fact, they exclude the most suicidal people. And consequently, the epidemiologic studies, while they aren't as rigorous because they're not controlled, they uh, are much larger and and more representative. So consequently, I think when you take that together with the fact that the risk difference is relatively small, um, most child psychiatrists believe that the benefits outweigh the risks in, in selected youth.
0: Right. Um, But I guess from what you said earlier, the first line is still non-drug treatment. Uh, Is is that correct?
1: It is. I would say in the United States, often people are reluctant to commit to psychotherapy, um, even though, for example, at our clinic, we routinely offer it. So, So you do, um, I think the guidelines in the UK are a bit different, um, that, you know, there's a much stronger recommendation to start with psychotherapy, which which I agree with. But from a practical perspective, if you don't have access to a psychotherapist who's skilled in CBT or IPT, and or the family is not really interested in making the commitment to uh, psychotherapy, then... Um, I think it's you're justified in, in using an antidepressant for kids with more chronic or severe um, depression.
0: Why might families not be able to commit? Is it the, the time and resource needed to put into it, I guess?
1: Yeah, it's time, it's expense, and um, it also uh, requires work on the kids' part. You know the 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 treatments uh, teach skills, and you don't really benefit from the skills unless you use them and practice them. And of course, it's an art of psychotherapy to engage people and get them to want to do those things. But you know, still, uh, many times people say that they're not they're not interested.
0: Okay, thank you, thank you. Let's move on to recent or, or relatively recent advances in, in management. Can you tell us about this a bit?
1: Sure. So the first is a recognition that uh, sleep problems that are associated with depression don't always um, remit with uh, depre- treatment of depression. And that if you don't um, deal with that, you end up with a, um, you know, with a partial remission. And so people now are more aggressive about um, assessing sleep problems and dealing with it. And there are both uh, cognitive behavioral approaches and um, you can use medications such as melatonin to uh, help with sleep problems. So I think that's a very important element of uh, management that I think we've become more aware of in recent years. The the um, I would say the more recent advances, one is a recognition about the best way to manage uh, treatment-resistant depression. And if, you, if somebody is treated with uh, psychotherapy and then you add uh, an antidepressant and they still don't recover, it seems that the next best step is to switch to a different um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And, um, and that there isn't that much advantage between using that and um, a drug like venlafaxine, which is a, a selective serotonin neuroadrenergic uh, reuptake inhibitor. Another um, advance is the use of uh, a transmagnetic uh, stimulation and And this falls into a a broader category of different neuromodulatory approaches that include electroconvulsive therapy. The TMS is uh, much less invasive and um, has been shown to be uh, helpful in open trials in youth. And in adults, it's been much better studied. Another area that people are working on is the use of ketamine. And ketamine is originally used as an anesthetic, but um, it has uh, it has a very rapid antidepressant properties. Of course, it only its effects only last about a week, but um, it seems to be uh, quite useful in the management of um, treatment-resistant depression. the The difficulty right now is that we don't know we haven't done that many studies in kids. That's one thing, but We don't really know um, what the long-term effects of using ketamine are, uh, that most of the studies have focused on the um, immediate relief of depression. And another area that's promising and, to my knowledge, hasn't yet been used in youth is neurofeedback. And um, a colleague of mine, Kim Young, has developed uh, an intervention um, in, the, in the fMRI scanner where um, she has a patient think about a positive autobiographical memory. And um, depressed people have more difficulty recalling them and recalling them in the same degree of specificity that a non-depressant person can do. And by using feedback about the amount of activation in the amygdala, which is uh, one of the emotional centers of the brain, um, she can actually help somebody relieve their depression and in a small clinical trial showed you know, that it was more beneficial than a sham intervention. And so I think we're going to see more of these type of interventions that are really psychotherapy interventions that are guided by, um, by um, fMRI or, or EEG in the future.
0: Okay, thank you. That's that's helpful. Last question is about pitfalls, this time in management. Tell us about any common pitfalls in management.
1: Sure. Um, well, the main pitfalls in management are have to do with the way that you're treating the condition or what you're missing. So in terms of treatment, if somebody isn't responding, you want to make sure that they're actually getting an adequate dose. And that also goes for if somebody's referred to you and they say, oh, you know, I've had treatment and it didn't work. And it might turn out, you know, they had three sessions of psychotherapy when you need 10 to 16, um, or that they had the treatment, but they didn't do the homework. And consequently, they didn't really get the benefits of treatment, or they had an adequate dose or, um, you know, got treatment for too short a time, or they actually didn't take the medication uh, regularly. So I think the first thing you want to make sure is that you're not dealing with non-adherence um, rather than non-response. Uh, a second pitfall, I would say, is that if you, um, if you let's say that you do use an antidepressant, um, that if somebody doesn't respond to a lower dose, that within three or four weeks, you should try a higher dose before deciding that the antidepressant uh, isn't effective. Another problem is missing, um, you know, a that the person has some subtype of depression. For example, somebody with seasonal affective disorder, which is where you develop depressive symptoms, usually in the fall and winter, um, they'll respond to light. And so um, they can respond to antidepressants, but light is the best and most specific treatment. Um, and we've talked a little bit about missing a bipolar diagnosis, but it's important to attend to the emergence of hypomanic symptoms, which suggest that the person may need a mood stabilizer instead of or in addition to an antidepressant. Uh, another issue that you want to attend to is psychosis. So either you have uh, somebody with an early onset psychosis like schizophrenia that is, you know, presents with you know affective blunting and some depressive symptoms, or you can have a psychotic depression, uh, so that you need to assess for whether somebody has delusions or hallucinations, um, which often are mood congruent, and in which case somebody would need to be treated with an antipsychotic. And then there are other factors that may contribute to uh, treatment non-response. Um, one is peer victimization. So that if you have a kid who's being bullied at school or being cyberbullied, it's likely that they're not going to recover until you deal with that. And the same would go with whether a kid is being victimized at home or witnessing domestic violence. So you need to assess for that and attend to it if it's present. If you have a a child who's, um, is, um, is belongs to a gender or sexual minority or is being grappling with those issues, particularly if they're in a home or a religious community where that may not be acceptable, um, that, that's, that's a really important issue to, to deal with. We've talked about sleep issues that are important to manage, um, and, Another factor that can contribute to non-response is parental depression, and there's now abundant evidence that if you have a kid who's depressed and their parent is depressed and not treated, they're less likely to respond to treatment, so it's important um, to assess for that and, uh, and encourage the parent to get their own treatment. And then there are the issues of comorbidity. Uh, so Often people have a comorbid eating disorder, attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity or anxiety, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. And if these um, conditions aren't addressed, then it's likely that the person isn't going to uh, recover completely. And I'd say the final pitfall in management is uh, is the assumption that the treatment of depression alone is sufficient to prevent suicidality. And in fact, depression is is commonly associated with suicidal ideation, but there are other factors that cause the transition from ideation to actual behavior. And these are usually comorbid um, conditions of distress, like uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or or comorbid um, disorders of disinhibition such as substance abuse, um, which is really often co-occurs with depression in this age group. And uh, if you don't address and manage it, the kid isn't going to recover. And so that, but even in a kid who doesn't have a lot of comorbidity and is depressed and suicidal, what you do is you need to deal with the emotional lability, usually through psychotherapy, because that, Um, is something that can cause the uh, suicidal person to transition to actually uh, making a suicide attempt.
0: Okay. Thank you very much, David, for that very comprehensive answer. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.